like that sometimes. <laughs> I know they're right there. Tempting. A, a, a few years before we came to be your pastor, we were talking to First Baptist Church of Florence, South Carolina, and we actually thought we were going to go there. It seemed as though God was in that, and so we went down and visited the church, and they showed it to us, and it, it's a really interesting church. It was designed by Episcopalian, and it's unlike any other Baptist church I've ever been in. It is in the shape of a cross, so it had the two wings on the side and, and then the big, long center area. But what made it really interesting is the preacher didn't really have a pulpit. I'll tell you what he had in just a minute. Way over to the side, there was a huge pulpit that the minister of music led music from. Okay? And the choir sat opposite side of the minister of music. And there was a little well down behind where the preacher would preach, and that's where the preacher sat. And when it came time to preach, he would go up this little spiral staircase and they had a cage for him to preach in, suspended. I mean, it was, it, was, it was like six feet wide, and I actually asked them, um, and this is probably why they decided to go in a different direction. I said, you know, I'd probably be like a caged cat in that thing, and I don't know how often I would preach from it and how often I'd just come down and preach out of it, and so, you know, Lord led them in a different direction. That's probably a good thing. But it just made me think of that when y'all were sitting up here, very non-traditional, I, I thought of that weird area. This, this man and his buddy were at, at the sporting goods store, and they were checking out the tennis equipment. And uh, they were talking about their tennis technique and how they played and, and what they liked to do. And, and the one guy says, you know, when we're playing, my brain barks out a command to run forward, flip a drop shot over, and and then run back and get the volley that you send. And he says, really, your brain says all that? And he says, he says, yeah. Well, no, really. He says, then my brain says, who, me? <laughs> Some of you understand that. The older we get, my body cries, who, me? I, I've shared with you, I think the way I like to describe it is my brain cashes checks that my body can no longer pay for. Anybody understand that? Yeah, I thought so. How many of you have running shoes? Now, I'm not asking if you run, all right? 87% of Americans have running shoes, so hold them up if you have running shoes. Okay, all right. Now, I won't ask you how many run. I told you I wouldn't do that. But Baptists have spiritual running shoes. I read this this week, and I thought, this is pretty funny. Um, now, this isn't the way to get spiritual exercise, but if you want to burn some Baptist calories, here's, here's how you do it. Opening a can of worms is 50 calories. Uh, Beating around the bush, 75 calories. Jumping to conclusions is 200 calories. Throwing your weight around is 50 to 500 calories, depending on how much you weigh. And uh, making mountains out of molehills was 500 calories. A few years ago, we bought Andrew some weights. The Olympic bar with the 300 pounds. And you know what spotting is? I used to spot him. You know, normally the spotter is where you'd stand over and kind of grab the weights if... Uh, if they started to drop him. My version of spotting was sitting over to the side and, 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 and watching him, kind of spotting and saying, uh, you're doing a good job, keep sweating. That, that was my version of spotting, but it didn't, it didn't do well. The Apostle Paul loved using athletics to illustrate a point. He's writing to the church at Corinth, and Corinth was the place where the Isthmian Games were held every two years. You had to be a Greek citizen in order to participate in the Isthmian Games, and they were somewhat like the Olympic Games, 
where people would come from around the, uh, around the known world there, and they would compete, and they would receive prizes. Um, it was second only to the Olympic Games. And so he's writing to a, a city in Corinth where people are interested in sports analogies. They were very into sporting games and so because they hosted them. And so in our text tonight, he's going to speak of a runner. He uses the illustration of a runner. Now, this wasn't the only time that Paul ever spoke of a runner. Many people believe Paul, and I, I believe Paul was the writer of Hebrews. Hebrews 12.1 says, Wherefore, seeing we are also encompassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily besets us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Philippians 3.14, he says, I press toward the mark for the prize of the calling of God in Jesus Christ. So tonight, the message, and, and I don't have a, a PowerPoint for you because my administrative assistant had a very sick child the last couple days. So she's been home with him, and I just didn't worry about it. So you'll just have to take notes on the fly tonight, all right? The title of the sermon is How to Run Your Way Race So That You May Win the Race. How to Run Your Race So That You May Win the Race. It's in 1 Corinthians 9 as we continue looking at key passages in in uh, first corinthians first corinthians in nine <clears throat> verses 24 to 27 i invite you to stand to honor the reading of god's word now again paul's writing to this very sports-minded culture in corinth and he says do you not know that those who run in a race all run but one receives the prize run in such a way that you may obtain it and everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now, they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore, Paul says, I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. God bless the reading of his word. Go ahead and be seated. You know, the, the, I know that this is a divided congregation. Some of you are Western fans, some of you are UK fans, and there's a few Louisville renegades thrown in. Um, but, you know, those of you who are UK fans, I, I was really glad to see Mark Stoops win Coach of the Year this year. I, I was. You know, he came from Florida State where I went to school, and that's where they hired him from. But I just think he's done a good job, and he seems to be a good man. And, and yet, you know, winning that Coach of the Year didn't take into account, you don't recognize all of the hours that he had to put in in recruiting athletes. All of the hours that he and his coaching staff put in in, in training the athletes uh, to get them to that point. What if, what if football teams ran their teams the way churches run their churches? You ever thought about that? You know, Stoops had a great year. What if, what if he had ran the University of Kentucky program the way Kentuckians run churches? You would have had players that were too busy to show up for all practices and most games. I mean, you would. You'd have had players telling the coach, you know, I'd like to be there, man, but I got something else to do this weekend. I, I, coach, I can play on the third week and the sixth week of this season. I can be there for you those weeks, but that's it. That's acceptable in our churches, but that's not acceptable on a football team. Or you'd have players complaining that practice isn't fun, that it's not meeting their needs. How do you think that would go over if somebody went up to Mark Stoops and said, you know what, coach, this whole practice thing, it's just not meeting my needs. 
I, I'm thinking they'd be running gassers or running laps or something, running the, running the stairs in the stadium. Um, you'd, have tellers, you'd have players telling the coach how to run the practice. Um, you know, it's not meeting my needs, and I can imagine Stoops saying, well, I hate to tell you this, but it's not about your needs. And that's what we say in church. Um, players would be complaining that the coach spends too much time with a few certain people. You know, coach, I don't think it's fair that you concentrate on the quarterback all the time. I mean, us defensive tackles are just as important as the quarterback. Now, there's different personalities in the church, right? Would you agree that you get along better with some people at Eastwood than you do other people? I'm not saying that you don't get along with some folks, but they're just people that you connect with better than others. That's just the way personalities work. And the only person, it's kind of a double standard because the only person who can't connect with certain people is the pastor. Pastors expected to connect to everybody. And I remember not long after we got here, there was a lady that kind of became my, my children's adopted grandmother. My parents hadn't moved here yet, and, or they were just in the process of moving, and, and she took our kids under her wings and, and kind of grandmothered them while, while they were smaller, and, um, and, and I actually heard people say, you know, you're spending too much time with so-and-so because, you know, folks are complaining that you're not spending enough time with them. Now, I just use these illustrations because if, if, if we ran our churches, or if we ran football teams the way we run our churches, we'd be in trouble, and yet we accept this stuff in churches. Let's talk about the participation in the race, first of all. Look at verse 24. Everybody is in the race. He says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run? It's a personal race. Everybody participates, and it's, it's a personal thing. Um, I told you only Greek citizens could compete in the Isthmian Games. Now, some people today have dual citizenships. Just curious, anybody here have a dual citizenship? Um, a dual citizenship is like, let's say, um, well, like Ted Cruz, I believe. I believe his parents are American citizens, but he was born in Canada, and so he actually, for a time, had dual citizenship. He was a Canadian citizen because he was born there, but he was a U.S. citizen because his parents were U.S. citizens, and so that's dual citizenship, all right? I was born in Sacramento, California, so I'm an American citizen, but I was born again in Homestead, Florida, which made me a citizen of heaven then. Um, and, and so I have this dual citizenship. When he says we all run, some of your translations say run all, but it really means all run, that everybody is in the race. It's a, if you're a Christian, you're a citizen of heaven and you're a citizen of earth, so you have dual citizenship and you are running in this race, not just the physical race of living day by day, but there's a spiritual race that you and I are involved in as well as believers. And uh, in our spiritual race, it's kind of like, if you ever ran track, you know there's lane assignments. With lane assignments, you have to stay in your, in your lane. If you step on the line or cross over the lane um, before it's time, if, if, if you're in a race where you get to cross over, before, if you cross over before that, out of your lane, you're disqualified. Well, we all have spiritual lanes to run in. And my race is different than your race. I may be a sprinter, you may be a marathoner. Okay, but, but everybody has their own individual lane to run in. It's a, it's a personal thing. Everybody has a specific course that God has mapped out for their life, and it's unique. Your course is different than my course, and my course is different than your course. God has a plan for every one of our lives. Paul says those who run in a race all run. 
he would say in Hebrews 12 that we have this race that's set before us. So we should run with endurance. Um, here's the tragedy. We have a lot of folks that show up on Sunday mornings and they don't even know what lane assignment they're in. They have no clue. By that I mean they don't know their spiritual gifts. They're not using them. They're just checking the box, I'm here on Sunday. And, and even worse than that is there's a, there's a lot that miss a lot of Sundays. They just don't even show up on race day. I mean, they just, they, they just aren't there. And, so, and, and they wonder why things are amiss in their life. You know, some Christians have track shoes and shorts, have the whole gear, but they sit in the stands on race day. We all, the participation in the race, it's a personal race, but it's also a public race. I want you to notice what the, the, the word race there in, in verse 24 is the Greek word stadion. We get our word stadium there. Okay? So the race, he's implying that the race, when he used the word stadium, they would have understood that the race was being held in a stadium. A stadium would have people in it, so it was a very public thing. People were watching the race, watching the racers. You know, for us as believers, the world is the stadium we run in. And people are always watching us. They are. I mean, especially lost people, they'll watch us to see how we run our race. That, that's why it's so important that the way we run our race is good. A poorly run race is a poor testimony. You understand that? If we don't run our race well, that's a poor testimony because we are representing the Lord. D.L. Moody said, where one man reads the Bible, a hundred read you and me. I think he's right. A lot of folks reading us to see, um, we're the, as it's been said, we're the only Bible some people ever read. And, and so how we as Christians run our race can have a positive or a negative impact on those around us. We can influence those for the positive or we can influence them for uh, the negative. A poorly run race turns people from Christ and a, a properly run race turns people to Christ, hopefully. And so that's why it's important that we run our race well so that people would turn to Christ. Um, you know, races have a start and a finish. There's, there's no race that just goes on and on and on. And so in this spiritual race that we're in, we should all know where the starting line is. All right? You should be able to remember the day that you entered the race. The day that you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's the day that you entered the race. And the finish line is when we go home to glory. Okay, And everything in, else in between is between the start and the finish. We don't know when we'll cross the finish line. We don't know when the race will be over. We just know that we have to run well and finish our race. So the participation of the race. Let's talk secondly. Paul talks here about the passion of the race. He says one receives the prize, so we should run in a way that we can obtain it. You know, that race, and I ran track in high school. Most races, there's, there's one objective. And that's to win. If you enter a competitive race, you have the objective to win. Nobody enters a competitive race just for pleasure. You know, th there aren't any Olympians that have trained and they're like, you know, I don't care if I win or lose. I'm just here to run. I'm just having a good time. It's not like a weekend 5K where you run and you walk and you push the baby stroller. I mean, these people were focused on winning. They were paying the price. And Paul says they did so. Uh, this prize that was given... The word prize there was a, a word that was used to describe what would be given to the victor, and it was a crown of, 
um, palm leaves and some vines, and they would put it on their head when they won. That's why he says in verse 25, it is a perishable crown. Describes the nature of the prize. It would begin to wither as soon as they pulled it off of the trees. Um, so the Isthmian Games, they would get the crown, and it was kind of like receiving a gold medal because they would become national heroes. They would become community heroes. They would often have statues built on the road uh, in their honor. And so they were competing for this prize that was given, but there was also a prize that was gained. Because these were so coveted, these runners were consumed with winning. That's why they trained their bodies. That's why they disciplined. Their goal, ambition, their passion as a competitor was to win. So Paul says in our spiritual race, we should run in such a way that you may obtain it. The word obtain means to lay hold of, to grasp, to seize. And so he says there's a spiritual reward, a spiritual prize. And so we should run spiritually in a way that we can lay our hands on it, that we can lay hold of it, that we can seize it, that we can take control of it. Paul's telling the Christians at Corinth to compete. He actually uses the word competes there in verse 25. And that's an interesting word because that word in the Greek means to contend with an adversary. To contend with an adversary. So when he's using the word competing, it's the picture of contending with someone who is your opponent. Um, it's, the idea, it's the idea of straining for the finish line. It's, it's the Greek word agonizo, which we get our word agony from, or agonizing. Okay, That's this word competing. You're agonizing, trying to win. You're giving yourself completely. He says, but only one receives the prize. They didn't have gold, silver, and bronze. At the Isthmian Games, one person would win, and everybody else was a loser. So everybody was smeared when he says only one wins the prize. Y'all remember Mark Spitz? Mark Spitz was Michael Phelps before Michael Phelps was born. Okay, uh, Mark Spitz won seven gold medals in the, what was it, the 1980? No, 1972 Olympics in Munich. He was trained by his dad, Arnold Spitz, for a while when he was young. His dad trained him. And his dad, he, he, Mark would tell you that he, he remembers his dad asking him, how many lanes are there in a pool, Mark? And he would say eight. And then his dad would say, how many win? And Mark would say one. And what his dad was telling him is there's only going to be one winner, and so train and discipline and compete in a way that you're going to win. So great sacrifices are made by people like Michael Phelps and Mark Spitz and the runners here at the Isthmian Games, they would pay a great price to try to be able to obtain a perishable crown. Paul says in our spiritual race, we're competing for an imperishable crown. You know, to be rewarded for our spiritual race ought to be the desire of everybody here. We should have a passion to be the absolute best runner that we can be and to run the absolute best race we can run that should be our passion because one day we're going to stand before the judgment seat of christ and and we long to hear those words there are two words what, do you, what is it we want to hear well done right that's what we want to hear when we stand before him to be rewarded for running and finishing the race ought to consume us you ever seen an olympic race and somebody falls down that was a mary decker slaney and zola bud you remember Somebody falls down, and they've obviously then lost the race. What do they typically do? They cry, right? 
I mean, I, men or women, I've seen, them, I've seen them both cry. And why are they crying? Because they've put in so much time and energy and effort. They've put in years of training to win the race. That's their passion. And, and so I, I thought of that today, and I thought, do we have that same passion, that same desire to win the spiritual prize that's imperishable? The preparation for the race. How do you know if you're winning a football game or a basketball game? How do you know? The score, right? You look at the scoreboard, and you can tell if you're winning or if you're losing. It's not t-ball where everybody bats and no scores put up. All right? They're, they're actually competing. You know, the Warren Association of Baptists has a non-competitive softball league. That is a misnomer. No church league, one, is ever non-competitive. All right? And if it's a non-competitive league, why do they have a scoreboard and why do they give prizes out at the end of the season to the teams with the best record? It's non-competitive, right? No, it's competitive. Um, Paul is telling the folks here at Corinth that they should be competitive, that they should run to win. He says in verse 25, those who compete are temperate in all things. That word temperate means self-discipline, self-trained. And as spiritual runners, to be self-disciplined, there's two implications for us. Number one is, the self has to be crucified. If we're going to self-discipline, we have to crucify our flesh. John MacArthur, in his commentary on this passage, says this, If an athlete expects to excel, he voluntarily and often severely restricts his liberty. His sleep, his diet, and his exercise are not determined by his rights or by his feelings, but by the requirements of his training. Professional athletes today often are highly paid, but the Isthmian Games athletes were amateurs, as the Olympics are today. Amateur athletes train rigorously for years, often at considerable expense for the sake of an inexpensive prize and the brief acclaim that goes with it. Warren Wearsby said, an athlete must be disciplined if he's going to win the prize. Discipline means giving up the good and the better for the best. The athlete must watch his diet. As in, I'll just stop right there, you know. I'm out. I still like ho-hos and ding-dongs. Can I get a witness? Anybody else? You know, little Debbie snack cakes? So I read these things about diet, and I thought, no wonder I'm in the shape I'm in. He says the athlete must watch his diet as well as his hours. He must smile and say no thank you when people are offering, offering him fattening desserts or invite him to late night parties. There's nothing wrong with food or fun, but if they interfere with your highest goals, then they are hindrances and not helps. Now what's Wearsby and MacArthur saying? They're saying the exact same thing that I'm telling you, that you have to self-crucify. You have to crucify the self. You have to put aside your desires, your passions, your wants for what the Lord wants. You have to die to the normal desires to achieve a higher desire. You know, for Christians to win in the spiritual race, death to self is absolute. It's not optional. In terms of his spiritual race, Paul would say this in 1 Corinthians 15, 31. He says, I die daily. He says, I die every day. I have to put my flesh down every day. He said in Galatians 2.20, I have been, what? Crucified with Christ. Paul considered himself a dead man to the desires of the flesh. 
you know, in Galatians 5, he would write about the fruit of the Spirit, and one of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. That's one of the fruit. So to win the race, you have to have self-control. Now, to me, that's kind of... If, if you just read it at face value, you can be deceived, okay? Because remember, it says self-control, so it makes it sound like it's dependent upon us, but they're fruit of who? They're not fruit of me, they're fruit of the Holy Spirit. And so those fruit have to be produced by the Holy Spirit who lives in me. And, and so Pythagoras said, no man is free who cannot command himself. You know, uh, m- many people are poor spiritual runners because they can't control their flesh to win the race of self and to have self-control we have to be controlled by the spirit so the first implication is you have to crucify the self-life the second implication is the self-life has to be controlled it has to be controlled in romans 12 paul says we should present ourselves a living sacrifice now chances are probably everybody in here at some point has presented yourself to God as a living sacrifice. You've said, okay, God, I'm, I'm sacrificing self here. I'm, I'm setting aside self's desires, and I'm giving myself completely to you. The problem is we get up off the altar. You know, we, we say we're going to die to self, but be, before we're dead, we get back up off the altar. Um, Paul says, I die daily. We have to stay dead. Athletes struggle with their diet and with vacation and with sleep. Likewise, our flesh has to be brought under the control of the Holy Spirit. The truth is, it is empowered. Listen, listen, it is impossible for any believer to control the flesh. I don't care who you are tonight, it is impossible for you to control your flesh. It doesn't take willpower. It takes divine power. I mean, you, you Paul said, Paul, one of the if not the most godly human outside of when Christ took on flesh, he had to be in the top three. I mean, God allowed him to write half the New Testament. In Romans 7, he says, the very things I know I should be doing, I don't do. And the things I know I shouldn't be doing, those are the things I find myself doing. And so what what he was saying is, I can't control with willpower the flesh. It takes divine power to do that. He says in verse 26, thus I fight is not... Is one, not as one who beats the air. He says, I'm not shadow boxing. It's a real fight. And he told us in Ephesians 6, you remember who the enemy is? For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. You know, those people that get under your skin, the people at work that are lost and they just drive you nuts with the way they act and behave, they're not the enemy. The, the people who curse at you and, and treat you bad, they're not the enemy. They're being used by the enemy. The enemy is the devil. And so Paul says, I'm not shadow boxing. There's a real enemy, and his, his name is the devil, and that's who I'm fighting with. That's who I'm toiling with. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, he would write this. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What are the three parts, the trichotomy that make us up as a believer? What do we have? There's three aspects to us. What are they? Say it. You got it right. Body, soul, and spirit, right? We're all made up of body, soul, and spirit. Now, every time I've asked this question for 29 years, that's the answer I get. Body, soul, and spirit. In that order. That order never changes. Now, listen to what Paul said in 
1 Thessalonians 5.23 again. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is, is that just a play on words? You know, he, he reverses the order. We always say body, soul, spirit. We've always said it that way, but Paul says spirit, soul, body. So am, am I just making too much of the play on words there? I don't think so. Again, I've told you, I, I believe that God says what he means, means what he says, and I think the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to put it in that order for a reason. Let me explain. All right? If it's body, soul, and spirit, the implication is then that, that the body is controlling or dominating the soul. The soul is the seat of emotions, the seat of feelings, the seat of desires. That's, that's what our soul is. And so if, if we are body, soul, and spirit in that order, then we have the flesh controlling the emotions and the desires and the will. But if we are spirit, soul, body, as believers, we don't have the flesh in control. The spirit then is driving the flesh and the desires and the will. And so we're being controlled by the Holy Spirit and not by the flesh. I think it's when we get it reversed, that's when we run into trouble, when it's body, soul, and spirit. Verse 27, he says, I discipline my body, bring it into subjection, lest when I've preached to others, I should become disqualified. Our bodies are wonderful servants, but they make horrible masters. Do you understand that? Your body's a good servant, but it makes a bad master. When, when Paul says, I discipline my body, the word there meant to blacken a person's eye, to blacken their eye. In other words, Paul says, I knock out my body. You know, I, I punch myself in the face where I get a black eye so I can knock out my body. That's what he says when, he's, when he, that's what he means when he says, bring it into subjection. He makes it a slave. He made his body a slave to spiritual desires. And so I thought about that today, and I thought, okay, are, am I, are we slaves to spiritual desires or fleshly desires? You know, when it comes to winning, I think we should be like special Olympians. Yeah, you heard me right. I, I think when it comes to winning, we should be like special Olympians. Here's why. Their mission is to win, but they have a different perspective on what it means to win. For them, winning is not the same way that you and I look at winning. For them, winning is being the best you that you can be and making it across the finish line. That's why in the Special Olympics, if a runner falls down, it's not uncommon for other runners to stop and help them up. Now, in our version of the Olympics, we just keep on running and like, ha, that's just one more person I got to beat or one less person I got to beat. But for Special Olympians, they just want to be the very best that they can be on that day. And their goal is to make it across the finish line. So they stop and they pick that person up and they help them get to the finish line. And so that's why I say we should be like that. In the 1988 Seoul Olympics, the men's 100 meters was one of the greatest races of all time. Carl Lewis and Ben Johnson. Some of y'all remember that? I mean, it was incredible. Carl Lewis had already tied the record of, um, who was it? 
Jesse Owens back in 1936. When Jesse had won four gold medals, Carl had done that in the Olympics before in 1984. And so they both qualified for the 100-meter finals. Now, there were six other racers, but everybody was focused on these two guys in the middle of the track. And they blazed in the finals. Johnson got out to a quick start, if you remember the race, and Carl Lewis gained ground, but he never could catch him. And so Ben Johnson won the race, and he shattered the world record in doing so. But what happened just a couple hours later? He tested positive for steroids, for performance-enhancing drugs, and his gold medal was taken from him. The world record was not recognized, and he was disqualified. Paul says that he doesn't want to be disqualified, lest when I preach, I myself become disqualified. He, he didn't want to be stripped of his heavenly reward. wanted to win no matter the cost. So I ask you tonight, what about you? Do you have a deep desire to win your heavenly reward? And, and then I think the flip side of that is, do you have an appropriate fear of being disqualified? I think Paul had both. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we understand that we are all in the race. At least those of us who have been born again. And I pray that you would give us a deep desire to win the race. We're not competing against anybody else. We're just competing against our own flesh. And so God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be so in control that we'd not be disqualified, but we would win. Lord, we understand that we're in a stadium called the world, and many are watching, and they're looking, and they're reading whether we are running our race poorly or properly. So God, help us to run properly in a way that honors you. During the time of invitation, Lord, I just pray that we would be obedient to what it is that your Holy Spirit says to us. Ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here tonight and you've never trusted,